biology. 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 Hello and welcome to another episode of the HSC Biology Podcast. Today we are looking at the dot point, compare the adaptations of different pathogens that facilitate their entry into and transmission between hosts. So this dot point has quite a bit to unpack actually and it's important that we sort of split it up into into key points. So the first part of the dot point says compare the adaptations and compare as a verb is looking at the similarities and differences. So we're looking at the similarities and differences in the adaptations of different pathogens that facilitate their entry into and transmission between hosts. So we're looking at what's on the pathogens that allows them to gain entry into an individual and their cells, and also how they are transmitted between hosts. So how the adaptations allow them to go from person to person or from organism to organism. A good place to start with this one is with the virus. So we've been through some of the structural features of a virus, the fact that it has a protein shell with those protein projections or those keys on the outside. On the inside, we have a DNA or RNA strand, which is or which has the ability to take over the entire cell. So with the virus, how is it able to get from person to person? So how does it get entry into an individual? Well, it can be found in many different places. So a virus can live in water droplets, it can be found on surfaces, um, and it can get in through infected items and things like that. So gaining entry is usually through the mouth or nose, and they're usually breathed in on air particles. Now once they're in, they need to get into the cells, and that's what the projections on the side of or all around the virus are for. So usually they have a couple of different proteins that work in in different ways. One of the proteins is usually used to stick to the cell, so hold on tight and, um, and, and really adhere to that cell, which is important because everything is moving inside a cell. They don't want to get brushed off. They are very tiny compared to a cell. So once, they're cl once they have clung onto a cell, they then have a separate viral protein uh, which acts like a key. And that key, or the projection, basically tricks the cell into thinking that it is a good package and it wants to be brought into the cell. Now, specifically, I'm talking about the influenza virus here, or the adenovirus in particular, and that is different to other viruses. So other viruses don't necessarily use protein keys. Sometimes they will trick the cell by making a pore and depositing their DNA or RNA. Um, usually RNA in that case, but in the case of a specific virus, so looking at the influenza virus, it has viral projections that allow it to get into our cells, and those keys trick us into thinking that it's a good package and we'll bring it in. So we actually wrap it in a bit of membrane and bring it in via endocytosis, if you remember that from year 11, where a bit of membrane is pinched out around the virus. Now once it's inside, it does have more adaptations to continue its track and that usually involves other proteins that move through our inner defenses but for the most part that's really entry into our cells that's as much as you need to know now once it's entered into our cells it will obviously replicate and make thousands of copies of itself and those thousands of copies really are a good adaptation for allowing it to transfer from host to host 
The more copies of the virus there are, the more ability it will have to transfer its genetic material. And the virus has become very successful at this. So making lots and lots of copies, exploding them out of the cell, and then causing things like inflammation in the body. Now, once that virus has caused inflammation or an allergic response, we do things like cough and sneeze. And they are actually, you know, part of the virus's adaptation. They will use that to transfer from one host to another. So we say they stimulate sneezing and coughing. And in that way, they are transmitted from one place to another or from one host to another. So it's a really awesome adaptation they have to move from person to person. Now, once they're outside the cell, as I said before, they can last in water droplets for a long period of time and on surfaces. So viruses have an amazing ability to not dry out. And uh, again, the influenza virus has that ability, so it doesn't necessarily dry out that quickly and lose its, uh, its effectiveness. Um, so they're all really, you know, pretty general adaptations to most viruses that you can apply. At the end, I'll do a comparison of just a couple of the pathogens more specifically. Um, but let's move on now and look at the bacterial pathogen. Now, bacteria have many different adaptations that allow them to get in. Once again, they can be found on infected surfaces. They can be found in reservoirs, like water sources that are contaminated. They can also be on food uh, items which have gone off. And then once again, they can be consumed via uh, someone eating them. Now, once it's inside, it will use quite a few different adaptations in order to stick to the cell and then produce chemicals in order to get access to the nutrition that it's looking for. So once it's in there, um, it has uh, hairs on the outside called pili or pili. Um, and those are like just, as I said before, tiny little hairs all over the outside of the bacteria. And they allow it to stick to our cell surface. Once again, they can find receptors and, and really hold on. Now, they have more modified versions of those pili, which are the fimbria. And they're like, I like to think of them like little hands that kind of reach out. And they allow the bacteria to kind of move around once it's on the cell surface. So they can manipulate and move, uh, move forward and backwards, uh, which is very effective. As well as that, to get on the cell, they obviously have a flagellum, which you would have learned about. So that's a little tail they use to move forward um, to go to where they need. So that motility, the ability to move to an area where they're going to be more effective is very important. Now, once they've landed on a cell surface, they'll actually stop moving usually and they'll start to form a, a group um, of bacteria. They'll divide and once they've got a large enough group, they can produce a chemical that will that we usually call a biofilm and they can produce other chemicals too that can break down the cell or other chemicals that can communicate between other bacteria um, but I like the idea of the biofilm it's easier to teach uh, basically they make a blob over themselves that stops uh, our immune system being able to attack them and while they've made that blob they're more effective at dividing and replicating themselves so they can make lots and lots and lots of themselves with this biofilm protection so really they're allowed to you know generate a lot more bacteria Bacteria. And then once they have a large enough number of bacteria, they once again uh, have the ability to project themselves out into the interstitial fluid and move to other cells. So they're really creating like, you know, a zone where they're multiplying and making a huge army. Then they're ejecting themselves off this spot 
moving to a different cell and repeating the process over and over again. And again, they're looking for those nutrients. So they're looking to use the chemicals to, to take over the cells and really break them down to access what's on the inside. Now, once again, the adaptations that allow transmission, uh, the fact that bacteria have the ability to travel in water and water particles. So coughing and sneezing will do a similar process as we learned in viruses. So when we look at similarities, it's definitely one part that we can talk about. They can survive in water sources and reservoirs for long periods of time. Um, but bacteria, as I said, have the ability to move. So once they are outside the body, they can move to areas that they're more likely to be picked up. So it might be the surface or um, of the water or, or any other place where they're more likely to get access to a new host. So their ability to move and use those flagella give them a, an additional adaptation that viruses don't have. So again, another good comparison there, things that bacteria have and viruses don't. So obviously once they're outside the body and, uh, and on a surface, they can be picked up again and transmitted from person to person. Um, and you can apply similar logic to the protozoans that have very similar features to a bacteria. You know, they don't have a cell wall, so they're not as protected from certain things, but they have the ability to move. Um, they're more complex um, and probably have a greater ability to communicate between cells as they're eukaryotic. Um, but I won't really go through a protozoan, but a good one you can look up is um, Giardia. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but G-I-A-R-D-I-A. And they have very similar features to those bacteria. Now, one other one we can talk about, a pathogen that's really easy for students to understand, is a tick. A tick is a pathogen, a macroparasite, and they have mouth parts that allow them to stick to a host. They also have legs that allow them to move around. So these adaptations allow them to find a host um, and potentially uh, jump onto them. And once they're on the host, they can then use their mouth parts to adhere or cling onto. And they have a dual purpose. They inject um, uh, chemicals that, that stop us from feeling pain in the area. And then they'll obviously take the blood from the individual. Um, and then once they have the blood that they need, they can then move again. They have the ability to move around. They can move on to a new host and do the same thing. So um, a pretty effective strategy and a pretty simple one to, to talk about and a very different um, pathogen. So in terms of comparisons, it doesn't have too many features that are similar to the others. So it might be a good one to use um, if you're looking for some differences between pathogens. <clears throat> So if we look at a comparison, the, the best ones to use really are, I like to use bacteria and viruses. I really can't see them asking you too many to do more than two, like com comparing two pathogens. But if they did, I'm hoping you can apply the logic of bacteria to protozoans and say something similar and maybe have an example. But just quickly, some key differences between bacterial adaptations and um, a viral adaptation. So a good example of bacteria is cholera and they uh, act specifically in the small intestines and they release chemicals to break down our cells. They have tiny hairs, as I said, called pili for attachments. They can move using a flagellum and they can be stable in a range of different environments. So they're pretty good at being um, in an environment that is alkaline, like in the, in the small intestines, but they can survive in other pHs as well. So they can really survive for, for a long period of time. Now with a virus, the differences is it's obviously much smaller. So um, usually that's 
probably disadvantageous to it because it, it's more affected by uh, changes in the environment. Um, it has those viral projections like protein keys um, that allow it entry into the cell. Uh, it needs to use proteins to get past our defenses, which is not something the bacteria will do. And it can resist drying out for a very long period of time. So they have that uh, specialized protein coat that stop it from drying out, whereas bacteria might be uh, uh, more unstable in a, in a less wet environment. Now, in terms of similarities between them, they both have modified projections that help them to attach to a cell. So the virus has the protein keys and the bacteria has the pili. So they both have an ability to, to adhere to the cell. They can both survive in environments that involve water. So they're in watery environments or in reservoirs for long periods of time. And they can both enter, so if we're talking about, remember, not just their ability to get in, but how they're transmitted, they can both be transmitted through infected surfaces. Um, so a surface that is contaminated with a virus and a bacteria, can you can pick it up from either of those. So again, a similarity there. So that's a pretty good overview of the similarities and differences between the bacteria, which we were looking at cholera, and the virus I was speaking about there, sorry, was influenza. All right, now we're going to move on to the next inquiry question, which is how does a plant or animal respond to infection? And the dot point itself, investigate the response of a named Australian plant to a named pathogen through practical and or secondary sourced investigation, for example, fungal pathogens and viral pathogens. All right, so this dot point, you need a named example of a, an Australian plant and a named example of a pathogen. And with the four example dot points... <laughs> It's tricky. You should only really have to do one of the two, so a fungal pathogen or a viral pathogen. But we have seen questions in the past that do use one or the other, so knowing them both may be beneficial. Um, I'm going to go through fungal pathogens because that's what I usually do. Um, but just be aware that you might want to find a secondary example of a viral pathogen if you want to go that extra step. So the um, fungal pathogen we're going to look at today is called myrtle rust. And myrtle rust affects an iconic Australian plant, the eucalyptus plant. So very quickly I will mention that I have seen a question involving the scientific names of the plant and pathogen. So uh, very quickly the plant eucalyptus is, well there's many different types, but they're from the Myrtaceae family, uh, spelt similar to myrtle, so myrtaceae, and the myrtle rust pathogen, it has quite a long name, but it's handy because it kind of starts with oz, uh, and that's ostropuccinia and then cidiae. Uh, I'll put those up on the page so you can check them out for the spelling, uh, but that's probably a bit extra than what we need. So moving on to the dot point itself, it says, what is the response to a named pathogen? So what you really want to look at first is how the pathogen affects the plant, and then from there, look at how that plant responds to that pathogen. So if you have time and a teacher that really knows what they're doing, you can do a practical investigation where you observe this type of rust on a plant, um, it is difficult to do, uh, especially in the time frame we have, um, but if your teacher has done that with you, um, that's wonderful. I wish I could do it. Um, I wish I knew more about plants specifically, but I do it as a secondary sourced research task. And so I set my students the work to find out how myrtle rust affects the plants and then get them to look at um, responses in the eucalyptus plant um, to all pathogens. And then specifically we look at how the myrtle rust can be um, overcome using those responses. 
So looking at how myrtle rust affects the eucalyptus plant, it is a type of infection that attacks new growth um, around the leaves and around the shoot tips and the young stems of plants. Um, it usually starts as a small purple spot um, and then bright yellow spores form inside and then they release those spores which can be dispersed via wind and then they continue to do that job of um, attacking that new growth, so making it difficult for the plant to grow. Now in terms of the responses from the eucalyptus plant, it has a few innate defenses, those are barriers to entry, and then it has quite a few uh, specific defenses. Um, it's not like the human um, immune system that we'll talk about later where we have this adaptive immunity, um, but it does have some uh, pretty cool tricks in order to get rid of the pathogen. So. Uh, obviously on the outside of trees they have bark and that bark is uh, difficult to get through for any pathogen, um, in particular myrtle rust. They also have relatively thick cell walls um, and they're composed of things like pectin and lignin which really make it difficult to penetrate in the first place. Now once they are able to get through those initial barriers the plant has a number of different mechanisms to try and stop it. One mechanism is that it will use a production of proteins, structural proteins, almost like reinforcing the cell wall around the fungal pathogen, so really stopping it from going any further into the leaf. Um, and that uh, reinforcement makes it harder for those uh, spores to start growing as well. Now, you'll all know that uh, eucalyptus plant produces eucalyptus oil, and those eucalyptus oils are antibacterial and antifungal, so they're quite useful in stopping the spread of the fungus any further if they are able to penetrate the leaves or the bark in any way, shape, or form. Now, in terms of uh, more specific defenses once they're inside, one that I like to mention is um, something called uh, oxidative bursts. And an oxidative burst is... The way I like to describe it is it's like flooding the area with oxygen and that causes the fungal pathogen to basically burn up. It uses all of its processes like in respiration and it overfires. Um, think about like forcing too much fuel through, a, through an engine. Um, if you did it to a certain point, the engine would eventually you know, blow up or, or overheat. Um, it's the same sort of process. So um, the use of this uh, oxygen um, is really used to, to stop the process or, or the movement of that pathogen. Um, sometimes you'll hear about things like um, reactive oxygen species like salicylic acid, and that's very similar uh, to the same process. Um, and another one that you might hear of is uh, the production of antimicrobial peptides. So these are specific amino acids that have the job to uh, minimize the impact of that pathogen. Now beyond that, I think going into too much detail will be probably not necessary. It is very complex. When you do a reading of the, uh, the defenses in a plant, it's, it's difficult to determine the actual function of each of the individual parts. Um, the language used in most of the articles is very complex and so I think having at least three examples to talk about as defenses are really useful. So I'd say the barrier of having you know bark and thick cell walls is quite easy to remember. The production of eucalyptus oil is pretty easy for students to remember as well and the more specific defense of an oxidative burst is uh, I think something that you know, even at the top level answers, that's something that would, would really get you that band six mark. So I think having three examples is certainly uh, probably all, all what you'll need for this answer.
Now, with any secondary source research task, you do want to make sure that you are understanding the best way to conduct that investigation. So using reputable websites, um, not .com, you're looking for sort of .edu or .govs. Um, you want to make sure that the information you're obtaining is uh, found on other websites, so it's similar. You want to be looking at the author and making sure that the per and making sure that the person that wrote the article is someone who works in that industry um, and does have the qualifications. And you want to make sure that the information in the article uses the correct language and has uh, supporting information or references to, to really make sure that article is reliable. So with any secondary source research task, that's something you should be looking at doing. So in our class, we quite often use the CRAAP model, C-R-A-A-P, stands for Currency, Relevance, Authority, Accuracy, and Purpose. And if you check out that model online, you'll see a bunch of things that you can do to ascertain the reliability of the articles you're looking at. Uh, probably just a bit extra again, but something that the HSC could certainly ask you about. Well, as always, guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode and head on over to the Facebook page for any of the things that I spoke about today on the podcast and be sure to check out stemreactor.com.au for anything you need related to STEM or biotechnology in schools. That's stemreactor.com.au.